I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, what does AI teach us about love and what it means to be human? Kazuo Ishiguro is a Nobel Prize-winning author who also won the Booker Prize for his 1989 novel, The Remains of the Day. The Economist calls him the most remarkable writer of his generation. In his new book, Clara and the Sun, the narrator Clara is a robot who's been created as a companion, an artificial friend, as they're called in the book, to a sickly girl called Josie. The robots in the novel are designed to stop young children becoming lonely, but science fiction is littered with examples of intelligent computers who end up with wills of their own. One thing such fictional machines do have in common is a tendency to go wrong. But Clara's story follows a different line. The growing affection between Clara and Josie leads us to the question, is it only humans who are capable of love? Kazuo Ishiguru, welcome to The Economist Asks. Very nice to be here. Now, science fiction is littered with examples of intelligent computers. I'm thinking about HAL 9000 in 2001, A Space Odyssey, Eddie in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, of course. And there's also Adam, the android in Ian McEwan's book in 2019, Machines Like Me. We talked to him on this show then. Where does Clara in Clara and the Sun fit in here? Who's she like and who's she really not like? Well, oddly enough, I mean, and all these examples, you know, that have come before me are, are terrific examples. I don't think Clara is necessarily trying to compete with them. In fact, I think Clara comes from a different tradition altogether. I think she's more like a doll or a soft toy in children's, you know, like young children's literature. I know that because that's the direction I came from. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I was fascinated by this viewpoint of a creature that was very much outside of the human world, but would actually observe it from a slightly odd perspective. She's called the artificial friend. Technologically, how would you describe her? She's She's more than a robot, isn't she? We often write about the difference between machine learning and where that fits with broader AI at, at The Economist. But it strikes me that the thing that makes her really interesting is going to drive a, a lot of the plot is her relationship with empathy. I mean, this is one of the questions that would always be there in the reader's mind. Does she have empathy? Does she actually understand human emotions? Or is she just observing human emotions and therefore... Uh, to some extent, simulating them within herself. It's hard to know. I mean, it's, it's a, it becomes a very interesting question for us, but it's a question for Clara too. And so she focuses on questions like that. What are human emotions? You know, how do they work? And in particular, she, she's fascinated by human loneliness because 
that's the kind of reward function that's built into her, is to stop teenagers from becoming lonely. So she sees the human world to some extent through the lens of loneliness. And then, and then as her vision of the world becomes more complicated, um, she still relates things back to loneliness. You know, when people, when people cluster together in families or they talk about loving each other, is that some way of avoiding loneliness? Can they actually fundamentally avoid loneliness? Is there something about human beings that makes them lonely by virtue of the fact that they are so each person is so complex um, and complicated that it's very hard to build bridges with each other? This is what Clara observes. It's hard to know whether she is having real emotions or not. And I suppose the question comes back, I mean, what are our emotions as human beings? What what do they amount to? I, I like the way that when we meet her, we sort of think of her almost as a shop window dummy. I mean, that's the sort of presentation of what she is to the the system that she's in before she, she goes and joins a, a family. But the just sly mentions that she seems to think and calculate about emotions do you believe in the human heart? I think is a quote at one point. I don't simply mean the organ. I'm speaking in the poetic sense. Do you think there is such a thing? That seemed to me to be the moral inquiry that you wanted to conduct in this novel, as well as the natural curiosity an author these days would have about artificial intelligence. You know, I, I've begun to wonder if the presence of artificial intelligence in our lives, if it might actually lead to some fairly fundamental change in the way we view each individual person. Perhaps in the way that, say, a wide-scale belief in God, in a very literal sense, the idea that we all had souls. I'm wondering if we are now due for some other subtle but pretty fundamental shift in the way we regard each other. When things like algorithms and um, big data starts to perhaps challenge our idea that each of us has something very unique within us, by virtue of which it makes sense to say that, you know, I love my daughter or I love my wife. Is there actually something inside these bodies that is beyond the reach of data research and algorithmic analysis? Is there something that is special, something more like what we used to believe in in terms of the soul? And I, I think in a world where we we're constantly accepting the fact that we can be broken down, our impulses and our wishes in the future and all these things can be predicted. Is it going to challenge the way we actually think of ourselves as individuals? I was interested in this idea of artificial intelligence, the sort of argument that we often have about it is between opportunity and threat or even fear. And it struck me that you want to do something, I think, in Clara and the Sun that is a bit more nuanced than that. It's not a sort of, should we be very afraid or can we fall in love with this robot? It's something about a world in which this is a given. I don't share the kind of the sense of alarm that a lot of people have about artificial intelligence. I just think it's here, you know, it's more or less here. Uh, I think there are some serious dangers about it, but that there are huge opportunities. I know I've learned a lot by talking to people who really understand artificial intelligence are some of the leading uh, people in the field. Um, and so I was naturally, I wasn't doing this as research. This was something I'd come to be interested in, concerned about. I'm probably equally excited 
and wary of where we might go. The concept of explainability, as it's used in this field, is one I think it underlies a, a lot of the decisions or the turning points, really, that we're going to follow when we read your story. And it reminded me of a piece, if you're talking about experts, I live in a world at The Economist where a lot of people who know a lot more about AI than, than I do. And I enjoyed a piece that we ran a few years ago, which dealt with this kind of conundrum. And I, I wonder how it, it, it struck you. It was the idea that even the designer of a neural network in AI or for a, a sort of humanoid presence can't really know, once it's been trained, exactly what that will do. And if AI agents could explain themselves, at which point we really do start to think, oh, this is getting closer to the way that humans conduct themselves. We do all sorts of slightly bonkers things, but we try to explain ourselves more often than not. And that would really be a big leap forward, wouldn't it? I think machine learning is so ahead of human beings. There is something that you trust to get the right answer, but you don't know why it's given you that answer. And you don't dare go against it. You know, if, if someone is saying, I need this operation, you know, a fairly invasive operation on my body, because this piece of AI is telling me that that, that, that is the correct thing to do, I probably wouldn't dare go against that. But it may, it may be the case that no human doctor can actually explain why. You know? I mean, you know, th this will bring us enormous benefits, but the difficulty with that is we don't quite know what prejudices and biases are inside that black box. A lot of the prejudices that we were able to slowly unpack through society over the years, like slavery is fine. And because they were there in human society, we could take them apart and challenge them. We can't unpack the biases and prejudices that's inside that box. It's a bit like our car. You know, it tells us all kinds of things now. Yes, exactly. We still find ourselves saying, well, why, why is that light flashing? <laughs> yes, exactly. It makes you know, terrible noises and we don't know why. Or you know, some alarming thing comes up when we're driving on the motorway and you phone up the garage and they don't know either. They say, oh, it's got a mind of its own. Strangely enough, the days when you just heard your car going wrong were in some ways more reassuring <laughs> than the light on the dashboard when you don't know what it is. It's that extra level between you and the, the experience. You know, I, I don't want to make, too, I, mean, I, I think this is a major challenge, but I, don't, I think it's a challenge we have to rise to. You know, it's not a reason to wind back artificial intelligence. The, the very nature of artificial intelligence, modern, artif you know, the latest generation of artificial intelligence is that it's not programmed by human beings, as you point out. You know, it thinks for itself. It gets a task and it solves it for, for itself. And that's what makes it so powerful. But it does mean it's harder for us as human beings to, to monitor it and keep control of it. It's one of, I would say, three areas that we have to be very concerned about, about artificial intelligence. Can I ask you about the setting? It doesn't seem to be set in a specific time or place. I felt there were traces of America, maybe a rather anonymous urban centre in America. I, I don't know, was I making, is that just a leap that, that I made? No, 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 it's, 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 it's America. I mean, people say mom rather than mum and... Uh, um, so this is, I, I had in mind young children's illustrated books. You know, I, I wanted something of that naivety and, and, the, and the sense of trusting in something good is protecting us, that you, you often get in the way those books are presented to, to children in the illustrations and in the stories. But often those young children's books have always struck me as quite poignant because you see in them on the one hand, the adult world's wish to protect children, 
of that age from you know how tough the world actually is you know so, so you, you're presenting the world as much kinder in a way but on the other hand you can see that there are all these little hints all the time you know the adult world is wishing not to mislead the children there are these hints about some of the sadnesses and darknesses that they would encounter when they're a little bit older and you see that tension in the, in the drawings in the colors that are used and in the stories themselves so i wanted a lot of that to be in this book the other thing that, that struck me is having a lot of relevance to debates we have about the evolution of the workplace in a technologically driven era is hierarchy and societal hierarchy that's also something that you dealt with a lot in your work in through many different prisms in Never Let Me Go in Remains of the Day in different social settings of course and that uh, happened I think in a news story recently it caught my eye when uh, someone the chairman had to leave at KPMG in, in Britain and one of the things that, that the staff objected to was this very rigorous performance pegging where someone had to come last it's not the only company that, that's had difficulty with that but it's an interesting thought isn't it that the more we know the more data-driven our judgments are, that kind of question about how we respond to that is just going to become more fraught. In Clara and the Sun, you know, there is a kind of a savage meritocracy has come to dominate the society. Um, it's, it's partly because it's almost like a post-work, post-employment society. You know, that old traditional model that we still live with now, where most of us hope to or can get some kind of paid work, in return for our services or the goods that we make. I mean, that that has broken down. You know, only a small proportion of people can participate. And so we're looking at a world where there are big inequalities. And I think the inequalities are growing, um, not just quantitatively, but in, in kind. You know, because we're not talking just about the difference between rich and poor getting bigger. We're talking about a gap appearing between people who actually participate in society in an obvious way and people who do not. Right. And the hierarchy that we see in Clara and the Sun, that inside the domestic setting, just as much as in the broader society, it reminds me a lot of Parasite, the Oscar-winning film, Clara and the Housekeeper, kept in certain areas of the house as they are in Parasite, almost sort of stored away. Was that something that was on your mind? I think you have seen the film, haven't you? I'd finished Clara and the Sun already by the time I'd, I'd seen it. But actually, that that year, you know, when was it last year when that film came out? I noticed that um, several films that were the acclaimed films of that year seemed to have inequality as a theme, not just the films about race. I, I guess in a more subtle sense, you know, that, um, between people who apparently had no clear divisions, but the big chasms between um, the, the haves and the have-nots and the society that accelerates that. I think one of the things that we, we have to face is that things like gene editing will, will actually make these hierarchies not just more obvious, but apparently more objective. When you can actually create babies or children who you happen to know are less prone to illness and perhaps are more, they have greater cognitive powers or powers of memory or just intellectual powers, then a meritocracy becomes a very dangerous thing. It's very hard to argue that, that you know, some people deserve bigger opportunities in life than others because they are more capable, unless we, we completely have a rethink about 
how we order the hierarchy is going to be very difficult. That is, as I say, part of the backdrop of um, Clara and the Sun. Um, kids are lifted or unlifted um, in, the, in that world. You know, um, In a film like Parasite, I mean, there, there isn't a clear objective definition of why some people belong to the rich classes and why some, some people don't. So in open societies, there, there is always this hope that you can go from the bottom to the top. American society has has been driven by this idea for, for a long time that um, nobody is fixed in this hierarchy. Um, I think as, as time has gone on, I think we're beginning to see that it's very, very difficult in practice. Social mobility is a very difficult thing. And I think once we have things like gene editing, that idea of the meritocracy becomes something in itself that furthers inequality. It does make me wonder whether AI could ever become creative in the way that we think of human creativity, <laughs> a question which lies in wait for any okay, novelist. No, this is a great question. Who great goes question. into this territory? Oh. I thought you were going to. I thought you were going to want to throw something at me, thinking, "Oh, not that one." But, but I, I just think it is absolutely fascinating. We, we've seen an advanced AI writing poetry by analysing the works of writers, creating versions of their work. So, is this pastiche? Or would you categorise it as in some way a creative process? It brings us back to a question you raised earlier on about empathy, whether artificial intelligence is actually capable of understanding human emotion, even if it doesn't understand it in some deeper sense. If it can actually use emotion, if it can manipulate human feelings and provoke human feelings, I think we're at an interesting and quite dangerous point when an AI author actually writes something that makes me laugh and cry, we have reached a point where you can employ very powerful campaign tools during a political campaign. In fact, you might actually get to the point where AI can actually think of the next big idea, not just simply help somebody get votes. I mean, this will, if AI understands human emotions... Never mind if it has emotions, if it understands how human emotions work. We are at a, quite a dangerous point because it could come up with a big idea. Like, yeah, I mean a big idea like um, capitalism or money or the joint stock company or communism or indeed fascism or whatever, you know. It can come up with an idea and it knows what to do with it. It understands how it presses the buttons with human beings on mass at a given moment. So I, th I think this question about, you know, creativity and artificial intelligence goes way beyond whether we're going to get interesting kind of novels or interesting bits of music made by machines, you know. I think the answer to that question is yes, you know, we, we will. You do. Um, you do. Yes, and you yes. don't think that simply is it? Well, it's it's an old question, isn't it? It's very sort of Faustian and uh, and takes us back to Greek mythology too. Is that then creativity or is that just a copy exercise, albeit very sophisticated? Well, I, I ask this about authors now, you know, and creative people now. How important is it that actually when you read a novel written by me, you actually hold on to this idea that you are communicating with me, another human individual? That might just be some sort of ruse. And often with movies, I think it is. A movie is, a, is, is a, often like a big corporate entity. You know, it's made by lots of different people and accidents and, 
and pragmatic decisions go into it. But we like this idea of pretending that the director is the auteur. That suits all of us. It suits the marketing people when you're marketing a movie and it suits us as the consumers because we need to believe it's a one-to-one, more or less a one-to-one human communication of feelings and ideas. I know because this is my own job. I do it. I, I write these novels and I know that to some extent how much you're moved by my books or not moved. I mean, it depends on, it sits on top of this idea that this is a piece of communication between one human being and another. But actually, I do sometimes wonder if actually my book is just this kind of box with a lot of things in it that I may or may not be able to control. And you're just responding to that. Um, I do hope we're talking to you as a human being today. (laughs) As you you point out, it's going to be quite hard to prove, isn't it? I think they did a very good job, you know. <laughs> it was a great <laughs> yes, assembly I know, line. Yeah, it's very, I'm, I'm very good. It's quite disturbing. <laughs> the other thing I'd say about uh, the other thing about artificial intelligence and creativity, I, almost certainly, artificial intelligence will produce a different kind of creativity. We have to figure out the big ideas impact of artificial intelligence because it means that there are big things being done to our whole democratic system. And that brings me to something I, I wanted to ask more broadly. One area we know technology is already having massive impact is in warfare. And one of the great technological advances, which had such a decisive and disruptive impact on warfare and on mankind, of course, was Nagasaki and the dropping of the nuclear bomb there. You were born there. And you moved to Britain at the age of five in the 1950s. we been marking the 75th anniversary of that atomic bombing last year. What sort of reactions has that brought from you as you look both to that event, but also to the fact that that is your birthplace? Well, it's it's always been very hard for me to assess the impact of that. Yes, I mean, I was born nine years after the dropping of the atomic bomb on Nagasaki, which was 1945. It's just been there all the time in in the backdrop. You know, my, my mother was there, a lot of members of my family were there. I don't know if it's had any kind of impact on the way I think about science. My father was a scientist. I think it would be natural if I was wary about science. Mm. But I, I, don't... I, I did wonder that, but it's not inevitably the case, is it? No, it isn't. And I don't think I am. You know, I, I have enormous respect for science. In my family, there was always science. You know, And at the moment, I must say in the last few years... In the era of fake news and what we've seen happening in places like the United States and and to some extent here and in Europe, you know, I'm beginning to have a new respect just for the way in which scientists go about things, in in the way they argue. Understanding that there is a hard truth that can be arrived at when you argue. And when you argue, you present evidence. And if the evidence goes against what you're arguing, at some point you just say, well, yes, you're right, and I was wrong, and you move on. That that tradition is very strong in science in a way that it doesn't seem to be in the world of the arts, and indeed in politics. And so we now seem to have got to a stage where as long as you feel strongly enough about something, it's valid. You know? um, and you can have completely wildly opposing, incompatible beliefs in terms of the evidence that is in front of you, 
and that is allowed. I begin to even question the very thing that I do and the very thing that I'm praised for. You know, I create these things that that are powerful emotionally. Why on earth do you write a novel or create a piece of music? It's, it's something to do with us sharing emotions and conveying emotions. But is that in itself a dangerous thing? I mean, is it automatically a good thing that we convey emotions and I provoke sadness or laughter or whatever in you? Is it a good thing that I perhaps argue a viewpoint about the world? Basically through emotions. Uh, because I think we're beginning to see now, you know, what happens when we just hold positions just based on our feelings on the emotion. You, know, you, know. you, you say that because it's slightly challenging in the sense it's not, you know, this is the story of mankind, isn't it? And it's in the, it's in literature and the consideration of philosophy from, from the get go. I mean, feeling matters too. How people respond to things matter too. Yes. Um, you know, all my life, you know, I'm now 66 years old. I mean, I've grown up with the belief that it, that it was very important to have an artistic culture, books, music, theatre, you know, art—all these things played a, a, a profoundly important role in giving us a decent society. But I could never quite figure out why. And I remember going to the World Economic Forum once. Yeah, you know, I, I get invited to strange places, and I, I remember going to that some years ago now, as part of a very small bunch of people representing the arts. And what struck me over those several days was that actually it was quite difficult to make us fit in to the larger body of people who represented geopolitics, religion, economics. It's always felt slightly bolted on, hasn't it? It was very bolted on. Over here we have a protected species of great artists and writers from across the world. Um, And I I think they genuinely find it quite difficult. We we were like like the after-hours entertainment, if people wanted to relax after debating about wars and and economic policies, if they wanted to relax, they could hear a bunch of authors, you know, talking about their books or something. I mean, in fairness, it does take place in Davos where the Magic Mountain is set. So the the novel tradition is <laughs> baked into it. I, I never, as you say, I think it's always quite difficult to find the bridge well, when I, you get there. This era of post-truth, as, as has been people calling it, has made me wonder about, you know, can I make these big claims for art and literature that I, I have done all my life to say that it's terribly important because it's not enough just to argue through polemic and evidence. You have to have the emotional side of human experience represented. The trouble is, I, I don't know, we, we seem to have tilted too far towards that. And so you have a ridiculous situation in the United States where half the people think Trump did win the election because they they just feel it emotionally. And there's no need to actually look at the evidence. If you feel it, then that's true. And the other side feels something else, you know. And it's so far from the scientific method. I, I don't know if this is a serious doubting of what I do, but I, I'm wondering if I'm contributing to that by privileging the the exchange of emotions as something very important as opposed to the exchange of argument and evidence. And I think in your Nobel Prize acceptance speech, you said you were looking to writers from a younger generation to inspire and lead us. 
this is their era. They will have knowledge and instinct about it that I will lack. I have to throw out you a, a quote from Martin Amos when we interviewed him not long ago on this programme. And I asked him if he read Younger Writers. And he said this uh, to us. When I said, you know, do you read Younger Writers? He says, when people ask me if I've read a brilliant new novel by a 25-year-old, I want to snort with laughter. Why should I do that? If it's there in 50 years from now, I'll read it. Do you feel the same? Well, I have enormous respect for Martin. He's a fantastic writer. Is there a um, butt coming? <laughs> he was a fantastic young writer. When I was starting out, you know, he's a little bit older than me. He was one of the young writers. You know, In that, I think, um, I, I think it's a shame that he has such an attitude. But, I mean, just to put it into context, I mean, it's not just that it's nice to read what young people are doing. In terms of the generations, I'm now 66. I've grown up in a world that was shaped by the Second World War, and, and the long aftermath, the big battle between communism and capitalism, in the political battle between left and right, the various liberation movements, the movements against racism and homophobia and all those things. These are the things that shaped who I am. And I feel that we are now moving into a different era. We have been in a different era for some time. And it's very difficult for somebody of my generation who has always seen the world through those lenses, who has seen, seen history through those lenses, to actually find the energy, the intellectual energy, the emotional energy, to engage with the world as it is shaping up now. And insofar as I can tell, the challenges are different. The schisms are different. The battles are different. When I was seeing in the Nobel speech, you know, yeah, we have to look to the younger writers. I wasn't, it wasn't just the perennial thing of saying, yes, you know, it's time to make way for younger people. I think we are at some sort of a, an interesting threshold, or perhaps we've already gone past it. We're in a different intellectual age. And my daughter, who is a novelist, in fact, you know, she's bringing out a novel more or less at the same time as me with Clara and the Sun, we have interesting conversations, and I can see that her concerns are different. The way she writes is different. She often says to me, she cannot understand why somebody as intelligent as I am can be so ignorant and complacent about climate change. And she's correct. And my reply to, to that is, well, you have to excuse me because I'm so exhausted, having spent decades thinking about totalitarianism and how we keep it back. I, I'm just this kind of washed up, exhausted writer, trying to just kind of change my lenses a little bit. I, I will allow exhausted, <laughs> but I don't think washed up. I don't think that will wash. <laughs> Kazuo Ishiguru, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us today. Thank you. No, it's, it's been really fun talking to you. And we'd love to know what you think could we picture ourselves loving an imaginary friend? And is AI and its rapid development our friend or foe? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For your best introductory offer to all of our coverage, including arts and books and science and technology, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, the real one, as far as you know, and in London... This is The Economist. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.